0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. God had his eye on Moses and his people long before today's encounter on Mount Horeb. Unlike the gods of other peoples in the ancient world, Israel's God could not remain aloof from humanity, selfishly pursuing uh, their own business. On the contrary, the God of Israel was too smitten with love for his creation, and especially for this particular people who were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had, in fact, engaged with these patriarchs so fully that he had made them rash promises declaring that their descendants would be more numerous than the sands of the seashore or the stars of the sky. Furthermore, this God had promised them life in a fruitful land to which Abraham had been directed, a land flowing with milk and honey. This love affair, initiated by the one true God, had clearly progressed by by today's point in the story to the verge of marriage, you might say, to a covenantal relationship between God and and an entire people. But, of course, problems had arisen. Partly through their own waywardness and partly through evils beyond their control, this people had gotten into trouble. Jacob's family, beginning with Joseph, had ended up in Egypt, which worked well for a time. But generations later, When their numbers had increased greatly, the Egyptians enslaved them and then sought to destroy them. God so lamented what was happening to his beloved people that he decided to intervene. Contemplating this rescue mission, God thought of Moses. This Israelite, who had providentially survived, clearly had a passion for justice identifying with his suffering people, even though he had been brought up in Pharaoh's house. When this passion led Moses to kill an Egyptian and Pharaoh found out about it, Moses had to flee. But God didn't leave him to a quiet life with the new family he had started. God had big plans for liberating his people at Moses' hands which led to the encounter on Mount Horeb, otherwise known as Sinai, which we read about today. What is remarkable in this account is God's condescension, God's coming down to the ground where Moses was and sanctifying it with his presence. Remove your sandals for for your own holy ground. Moses, this wanted fugitive, could even have a conversation with God and survive it. No such closeness with the pagan gods of the ancient world, but this is remarkable. This is amazing to Moses. The burning bush that was not consumed symbolizes the intimacy that is possible between this passionate God and his creation. Not only could God and Moses communicate at times with humorous turns in the conversation. I love that about, well, what should I tell him your name is? But God actually enlisted Moses in his plans. Uh, uh, God, the true God, joining forces with this fugitive um, to liberate his whole people from one of the world's greatest powers and lead them to the promised land providing all that God said he would provide all that Moses would need to do the job. And he pointed toward the next time that God would intimately converse with Moses on Mount Sinai, which was the time after the exodus from slavery when God would, in a sense, marry his beloved people, entering into a covenantal relationship with them and their descendants. This God is all about involvement about relationship, and he picked well in choosing Moses, one who would look aside and actually take notice of that burning bush, engage in a dialogue with God, and follow God's lead. We're getting a turning point in salvation history here in the Old Testament lesson. Well, this provides one vivid image of God's nature, and of the wonders he works on behalf of his beloved people, and amazingly with their help. The New Testament provides us with a parallel image in the the encounter of a young woman, Mary of Nazareth, with an angel sent by God known as Gabriel. Once again, many centuries after Moses, God is concerned about his beloved people who had indeed made it to the promised land, but who had been exiled from it for a time and who had again and again forsaken the covenant God made with them on Mount Sinai. They had failed to love God as commanded with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and to love their neighbors as themselves. And once again, they were in a sense enslaved, oppressed by corrupt religious and secular authorities and by their own sinfulness. They were in trouble again, and just as before, God could not simply stand by. Out of love, not only for his ancient people, but for all humanity, God came to this other marginal person, Mary, for assistance in his liberation scheme, knowing that like Moses, Mary would pay attention and willingly and lovingly engage with God on that intimate level. This time... God's condescension out of love for humanity knew no bounds. He came to us directly in the person of his son, Jesus, whom Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. The outcome God had in mind is clear in the song that Mary sang soon after this, which we call the Magnificat. It's the number one canticle at evening prayer which we sing or say time and again, and it's it's right that we do because Mary is articulating this liberation scheme that God called her to help with. Pregnant with the Christ child and inspired by the Spirit of God within her and upon her, she sang of a God whose mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation, who puts down the mighty from their seat and exalts the humble and meek, who fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty, who comes to the help of his people, redeeming them from sin and making them fruitful again for their good and to God's honor and glory. A rescue mission. Once again, the, the, that mission of all missions. It is no wonder that at St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai, there is an icon of Mary, As the burning bush, one whom God has set aflame with his loving presence, but who, far from being consumed, bears fruit by which God's purpose for creation will at last be fulfilled through a new and eternal covenant with humanity. My friends, God works in our lives, both collectively and individually, just as God was involved with Moses and Mary. As baptized Christians, we have already, in a sense, turned aside and looked at that burning bush and embraced God's presence and call in our lives. We're already committed. We're already in a covenant with God, the new covenant of God's grace in Christ. Empowered by the Spirit, we have already joined Christ in God's ongoing mission of liberation, You see what we let babies in for when we baptize them? It's a good thing. We initiate them into this intimacy with God, into this liberating mission that we've already been um, called to. We have promised in our baptism with God's help to build up Christ's body, the church, to resist evil, to proclaim the good news by what we say and do to seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbors as ourselves, to strive for justice and peace among all people, and to respect the dignity of every human being. We've said that a lot because it's in our baptismal covenant. That's what we have joined forces with God to achieve. We are on the front lines with Mary and Moses and with all the saints. But of course we have fallen short of this high calling. As we prayed on Ash Wednesday, we have not been true to the mind of Christ. We have not been true completely to our baptismal commitment to God and his kingdom. We have not been fully engaged in this liberating work of God. This season of Lent... And our readings today call us to repentance, to a turning away from all that diminishes ourselves and others and a turning toward what gives life to ourselves and others. It's a joyful thing. Repentance, we think of it as going around with ashes on our head and just moping and being sorrowful. But that—that's maybe that's part of it, but that's not the whole thing. It's a turning around towards something really good. And so that's why we ask ourselves the hard questions in this season. How is God trying to get our attention? What burning bushes are we ignoring? How is God calling us to be liberators in his name? How and why are we resisting this call? It's a time for self-examination and repentance. All our Lenten discipline should be geared toward opening ourselves up to pondering these questions and letting God speak to us. Both today's epistle and gospel warn us about the consequences of continued resistance. Ultimately, resistance involves turning away from God, from love, from what we need to flourish. However, renewing our commitment to Christ in His way, while not easy, will make us grow and flourish the way a plant grows and flourishes when it has light and good soil and water and, yes, manure. The fig tree story. be interesting. You could preach a whole sermon on what in our life is the manure that makes us grow. <laughs> what might this flourishing that comes from repentance look like in our lives? I've been thinking lately of Jesus' statement when he called his disciples that from now on they would be fishing for people. We here at Trinity and in the church at large are involved in a liberating mission more than we know. As we draw people in, fish for people, all of us are liberated in various ways. Liberated from want, from oppression, from fear, from isolation, from ignorance from our own selfish ways. God uses us to liberate each other so that we can most effectively witness and serve in the world around us. You know, they, they say the church is a hospital for sinners, you know, and we are all doctors to each other under the great physician, Christ. And we've all, if we think about it, I hope at least, experienced that healing, that revelation, that revelation, that communion that comes from interacting with each other in love and uh, in the name of Christ. Our calling as a church is, with God's help, to create the conditions in which all whose lives we are called to touch can grow and flourish. Dedicating ourselves anew to this mission, this Lent, We will feel the joy and peace that come from faithful involvement with God and each other. That's the only thing that's going to satisfy us. And it will satisfy us big time as hard as it it sometimes is. To use an image from the Psalms, God will renew the vigor of our youth. I say that one week before I turn 60. (laughs) I like that. God will renew the vigor of our youth if we just jump right in with Moses and Mary and each other. A new day, in that case, will dawn, an Easter day on which we can sing with full and thankful hearts, welcome, happy morning.